It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. We have a message today that is based on a topic uh, that I don't know, since it's Father's Day, you could guess that the title, The Better Man, is talking about like some great father. Uh, it's not. I'm, I'm famous for forgetting that there are holidays coming up and like Mother's Day came and I did something so opposite of Mother's uh, on Mother's Day and Father's Day, at least it has the word man in it, you know, so I can at least throw a bone to the guys out there and say, hey, I'm thinking about you. Uh, and, but I, I forget that it's Father's Day as I'm preparing these things. All I care about is like, God, what's on your heart? And I'm sure God loves Father's Day and I'm sure he wants to honor a whole bunch of fathers today. And I'm sure this would be edifying to all fathers. If all fathers got this, their families are going to be transformed. So this is a gift to not just fathers, but all families. Uh, but this is called The Better Man. Uh, the, the title slide's a little different than normal because I forgot to send the title to Annie for her to design the cover. So as a result, I put a little script in there for you to make you feel like we uh, have a cover slide for this. Uh, but The Better Man, and I have a subtitle, Deliberately Choosing to Obey. And so if you've lived life, your Christian life in my skin, that phrase is very, very significant. And it comes all the way back to a date, oh, 28, 29, 30 years ago, somewhere in that zone. Uh, and I still remember where I was. It was the December 1st, and I had gotten up early that morning, and I felt like God was asking me to do something extremely risky. And he was asking me to give everything that I possessed away. And it was a very specific challenge, which I'm not going to go into, but I still remember getting down on my knees and saying, God, I, I don't know that I can do this. And I, I, I had my utmost first highest with me, and I opened up, that's why I remember it was December 1st, and I opened up my, my utmost first highest, and there's a line in it, and I think it's my first thing here, and this is the very last line. When we deliberately choose to obey God, he will tax the remotest star in the last grain of sand to assist us with all his almighty power. And that's what I have reminded myself of over the years, that I desire to see God work in a mighty way in my life. But oftentimes the trigger for that to take place is that I must obey. And I like this word deliberately. It's not a pressure. It's not like, hey, hurry up, hurry up and obey. God doesn't mind us evaluating, understanding, counting cost, saying, do we understand what this means? Do we believe who he is? Do we believe that he is able? Do we understand that he has given us promise and that he cannot help but be faithful? Do we know that? Yes. And as a result, what is it's, obedience is reasonable. It actually makes logical sense for us to say, if that is true, then my answer is yes, Lord. In fact, in Christianity, I would say it even beyond that, it's, it's a predecided yes, Lord. Even before he ever gives you your next challenge, you've already said yes to that. Doesn't that sound strange that you would say yes to something God hasn't asked you to do yet? But that is because it's based, it's based on a predecided logic that my God is faithful and true, and if he ever asks me to do anything, I have a pierced ear for him. That's what the bondservant in the Old Testament had. What does a pierced ear for a master mean? It means before you even ask, my answer is yes. I have an ear for my master. So what you're going to ask me in the future, I've already stated yes. Deliberately. This is what it means from the Webster's 1828 Dictionary. With careful consideration or deliberation, circumspectly, not hastily or rashly or slowly. And so let's evaluate the worthiness of our God this morning. The term the better man is going to come from the story of David. Technically, I could say the story of Saul and David. And you're going to see God make this statement of the second man or the second king of Israel. He's a better man than Saul. And as a result, it's going to create a challenge for one particular character who I would liken us to in this story. It's Extremely fascinating. I think you guys will enjoy this. The heir apparent. So an heir apparent is one who is usually the son of a king, 
and they are the one in line to inherit. So it's usually the oldest son, not always, but typically the oldest son to the king, and they are the heir apparent. They are the one in secession to receive the crown. And so it's the obvious heir to the throne, the one first in line of secession, guaranteed the throne if he remains alive. And by the way, that last little phrase is important, if he remains alive. So I'm going to emphasize it just so that you can all see it. If, and I even underlined if, he remains alive. If he doesn't remain alive, he's not going to get the throne. And this actually becomes very, very important in our understanding of how Christianity works. So we're going to tell a story, and we're going to, I'm going to give you the players of the story. Saul, the reigning king of Israel. Jonathan, the reigning, uh, that's the son of the reigning king of Israel. And David, the better man. So I'm not sure what your notes say if it says the reigning king of Israel, but uh, it's, it's obviously the son of Saul is Jonathan. So sorry about that. And these are our key characters. The one in the middle, Jonathan, who is the son of Saul, is the character I want you to identify with in this story. He's in a very unique tension position, if you think about it. Who is next in line to be king of Israel? Jonathan. If he just minds his own business and doesn't get caught up in this drama of what God's doing, choosing a better man, and if he just sort of thinks of himself and says, look, I'm just honoring my father, then things can go well with him, right? He could inherit the throne of his father and, you know, hey, this is great. But there's some tension in here, and the same tension in our lives. The better man. So here's the scripture that it comes from. 1 Samuel 15, 28. So Samuel said to him, the him is Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. So David is the neighbor and he is better than Saul according to biblical definition here. He's the man after God's own heart. And so all throughout scripture, you're going to see this unique tension of a first and a second. So the, the students that were here this week saw me do this quite a few times. This is always my first. It goes over to the left side. I'm not sure you know, why I do that. I, I think Jesus separates out sheep from goats, and he puts the sheep on his right and, and goats on his left, so maybe that's why I do it. However, the first cannot please God. The first is rejected in Scripture, and the second one pleases God. And the second is accepted. And you're going to see this pattern all throughout Scripture. It's a very unique picture. Saul is a first. He's the first king of Israel. And he looks the part, too. He's head and shoulders. He's like Israel's giant. He's a massive man. And he looks the part. I mean, the Philistines have their giants, and now we have our giants, says the Israelites. And yet, God is going to say, mm -mm, I'm going to pick this little short, squatty guy over here. You know, a little young kid that is actually going to be the deliverer of the nation. Who would have ever guessed? So the players, Saul, the rejected king, the old man, the flesh. So as we sort of unpack this, you're going to recognize that Saul is a character in the New Testament too, just he doesn't go by the name Saul. He's the old man. So if you've ever heard the term old man, it's like I always think of uh, Leave it to Beaver and Eddie Haskell. I don't know if you guys ever grew up on that show, but uh, Eddie Haskell always refers to his dad as the, his old man. And that's not an incorrect statement. It's somewhat of a disrespectful statement coming from Eddie. However, the statement is your dad is the old man. It's who you're inheriting all of your stuff from, right? This is, you know, all your bad attitudes, your ego, all your selfishness. Where did it come from? It, you inherited it from your old man. So I feel bad for my, my kids, you know, I'm their old man in that sense. However, all of us, though we descend from Adam, we descend from a first. Adam is the first man. At any juncture, we can repent of this and actually put this first condition off and believe in Jesus and now be clothed in a new man, a second man. And so Saul is going to be the picture of that rejected king, the old man, or what the New Testament, Paul is going to go into detail calling it the flesh. It's our first condition. Jonathan is us. It's that self-dimension of who we are. Now, self can be capitalized and be, you know, this is about me. 
And even if you humble yourself and believe in Jesus, do you know that you still have a self? It's still there. It's just not capitalized anymore. It's like the lowercase version. And God can work with that. It's when you capitalize self and make it all about you that you have a problem. So this is you. It's the self. It's the heir to the unlawful throne. And then we have David, the rightful king, and his name is Jesus Christ. Okay, now David isn't Jesus, but he's going to be symbolic of it in the Old Testament. He is going to be the deliverer of a people. He's the second man. So Jonathan must choose. Oh, none of us want to be Jonathan. This is really hard. Because he has to either side against his dad or side against the better man. Welcome to your own life. This is exactly where you're at, too, and it's not that easy of a decision for you, which is why you need to deliberately choose to obey. Because God is saying, I've rejected your first life. It is under a just condemnation. If you stay as you are, yes, you can try and act like you're in control of this kingdom known as you, but it is rejected and it is condemned. However, there is a better man who is meant to rule this kingdom, to rule this body, to rule this mind, to rule this heart. But you need to give up your crown. You need to bend your knee and get off of your throne in order to give it to him. So Jonathan must choose the old man, Saul, or the better man, David. So the name Jonathan is an interesting uh, name. In fact, I think Nathan Johnson really likes his name because it's basically like, yo, Nathan. Yo, 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 Nathan. You know, and then Nathan's like, yes. Uh, and so it means Jehovah, that's the yo, plus Nathan, which is gives, appoints, sets, establishes, permits. So it's Jehovah gives, Jehovah appoints, Jehovah sets, Jehovah establishes, Jehovah permits. So I'm going to give a divine conversation, sort of like Jonathan's in his wrestling match with God. He's in the dark night of his soul trying to figure out what to do, which I guarantee you he went through. This had to have been a very, very difficult process for Jonathan. And so God's going to have a conversation with him, which is based on his name. Jonathan, it is I, Jehovah, that appoints. Jonathan, it is I, the Lord, that gives power to rule. Jonathan, it is I, Yahweh, Yahweh, that establishes kings. Jonathan, I am the kingmaker. Jonathan, David is the one I have set in charge. And so I think all of us need to understand that God is communicating to us in this unique tension point. Most of us don't want to live an old life. We don't want to live under Saul's rule. We don't want to be controlled by our flesh and our old man. But we have a, a certain affection for it. This is what we're familiar with, and we have dreams and ambitions here. Could you imagine uh, Jonathan growing up in the kingdom of Saul? Now, Jonathan was fairly old when Saul became king. If, you, if you've ever done the math on it, Saul's chasing his donkeys, you know, trying to, uh, and he's going to be, uh, and I always pictured Saul at that point as like, oh, maybe 20. But then Jonathan is like already fighting in battles with him right from the very beginning. So it's like, okay, obviously Saul was probably in his 40s. Jonathan maybe is 20, okay? That's just a guess, right? We don't know. But so Jonathan didn't grow up thinking he was going to be king. But then when Saul becomes king, it becomes pretty obvious who is going to be the heir apparent. It's him. And so you can imagine that would cultivate some dreams. Here's what I will do with the kingdom when I inherit it. This is what I can, this is my vision for the nation. It just is easy to happen, okay? None of us probably have ever had been the heir apparent to a kingdom. It's a fairly unusual position to be in. But we are, if we could say it this way, the heir apparent to our future and to our dreams and ambitions and desires. It's like, who gets to walk in that future? That's me. And so as a result, we hatch ideas and thoughts and we look forward to things. And so when we encounter Jesus, it's somewhat challenging to realize when someone says to us, did you know that your future belongs to him? Do you know that all your dreams and desires need to actually be handed over to him? He's the one that is supposed to be doing the dreaming. <laughs> it's his dream of your life that you really need to enjoy. It sounds so dull to it. It's like God dreaming for me. I don't know what sort of dream he's going to have. It could be a prison cell or a cross. You know, I've read the New Testament. I know what happens to people that follow Jesus. 
And yet, his dream isn't just earthly suffering. His dream is life eternal, the abundant life with him. He has dreams for your life. He knows what he created you for. But there's a tension here because you have a previous life. And in that previous life, you have hatched plans, dreams, ambitions. Jonathan David is the one I have set in charge. Church of Jesus Christ, God has put Jesus over his church. God has put Jesus over your body. He purchased it with his blood. He has a design for you. And so as a result, we find ourselves in a Jonathan position a wrestling match of choosing which way we're going to go. Are we going to side with our first life, our old man, or are we going to side with Jesus, the better man? God has rejected the first. So the first and second, the biblical pattern, I've already sort of showed it to you, but let's walk through this. It's, it's very interesting. Cain and Abel. The first is going to bring an offering. The second is going to bring an offering. God will reject the first offering. He's going to accept the second offering. And many of us are just sort of like, wow, that's sort of rude. God, what are you thinking? God is actually communicating a pattern through all of uh, history. He is demonstrating something that we need to begin to catch. The first cannot please God. It is the second that does, which is why when Jesus is going to come, he's going to say, unless a man be born again, he cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. You cannot stay as a first. The first is the condition of rejection. However, he has given us a way that we can enter into the second. Ishmael and Isaac. Abraham has two sons. The first one rejected. The second one, God is going to call his descendants through Isaac. Esau and Jacob. Jacob is also known as Israel. God is going to see Esau. Esau is going to forsake his birthright. Esau is going to live. He's the hairy hunter. He's everything that, you know, I don't know if all of us as guys would say, that's my dream. I want to be a hairy hunter. However, in the masculine sense, when you look at the two descriptions of the hairy hunter and then the plain man dwelling in tents, the plain man dwelling in tents is not very attractive to us. I've asked the, I've asked the ladies over the years, it's like, okay, so you have a hairy hunter that you could marry, or you could marry the guy who's in the tent knitting with his mom. <laughs> Which one are you going to choose? Our natural instinct is to choose something a little more robust, but it's so funny. I remember this one girl yelling out, how hairy. <laughs> Leah and Rachel, the two wives of Jacob, Think about that. The first one, I, you always feel bad for poor Leah because she is sort of rejected, right? And then you have Rachel, the second, and out of uh, Leah is going to come Reuben, out of Rachel is going to come Joseph, again, the deliverer of a nation. It's just extraordinary. And then Manasseh, Ephraim, the two sons of Joseph. And Jacob, even in the blessing, is going to swap hands and stick his right hand of blessing on the second. And Joseph's going to correct and say, hey, no, 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 that's the second born. And Jacob's like, I know what I'm doing. Saul, David. Old covenant, which is law. New covenant, grace. The law cannot save. It's only the second covenant that actually has the power to save. Adam is known as the first man. Jesus is called the second man. Isn't that just a strange statement? It's like, wait a minute, second man. 77 generations after Adam, he's called the second man. First birth of water, second birth of spirit. Old man, flesh, new man, spirit. There's a whole bunch more. This is just an overview. Hebrews 10.9, he takes away the first that he may establish the second. There's a good summary of the Christian life right there. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. So I am going to replace the first with Saul, and I'm going to stick in the second, and I'm going to replace with David to give you just an understanding of how the Bible is clarifying this. He takes away Saul that he may establish David. He's interested in establishing this second king. So 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 50. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. Then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. Listen to this. The second man is from heaven. Isn't that interesting that Jesus, 77 generations after Adam, is called the second man? 
As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. So I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. James 4, 6, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. First, second. The key for all of us is to recognize we don't want to remain in a first condition. We don't want to sidle up to a first condition, to Saul, and go down with his kingdom because that's exactly where his kingdom is going. It's going down. What we need to deliberately do is choose the better man, even though in so doing we have to give up our dreams of ruling this kingdom. We have to give up our future of being the grand king, the son of Saul, Jonathan. You know, when you picture the bugle blowing, you picture the ram's horn of oil being poured over your head, this big ceremony, and you're envisioning all the girls coming up to you and kissing you on the cheek, and you're like, oh! And God says, would you lay that down? I have a different plan for this kingdom, a better plan. This kingdom will be destroyed. I am asking you to submit to David. He is the rightful king of Israel. That which God receives. God resists the first, but gives grace to the second. So God always is going to have resistance over here. When you live in the flesh, what you're going to notice is the grace of God is impaired in your life. I I used the illustration when I was teaching this week of a hose attached to a spigot. Imagine the spigot is attached to the kingdom of heaven and all the grace of God that he wants to pour into your life. And so then you tie this into your life. However, when you live in the first, it like turns off the spigot. It blocks the hose. It it kinks it. It, You can't function. So as a result, you, you don't get grace. You get resistance because you're in the proud position. I can do this my way. I want to do it my way. Instead, when you step over into the second position, spigot turns on and the flow of grace is free. And as a result, you have the gusher of grace in your life. You have all that you need for life and godliness. You have the supply of God. Even in the darkest hour, you can rejoice. There is a peace that passes all understanding. How did you get that? You humbled yourself. It's interesting because you're moving into a stronger position, but to get into that stronger position, you have to take a lower one. Because you were on the throne here. And to get into that stronger position of being ruled by the king of kings, you need to give up your throne and become a servant. There's reasons why we struggle with this transition. God resists the flesh, but gives grace to the spirit. God resists the throne claimers, but gives grace to the throne yielders. The first, we'll call these guys the proud, the throne claimers. What is Saul doing? Saul was given that throne, and then he is going to misuse that throne, and he's not going to walk in obedience. God is going to then reject Saul from that throne and basically say, I've given it to a better man. It's no longer yours. And what is he going to do? He's going to hold on to it. He's going to hold on to it. He's going to hold on to it. He's actually going to bring about, my, my tally is 21 assassination attempts on the better man. Remember all the spear throwing, all the hunting, he's going to ca- try and capture him. He wants to kill the better man. Not a good pattern, guys. Okay, the old man, your father, if you want to say it that way, that's what I'm saying. This is a strange Father's Day message, uh, is actually hostile to the better man. And so when you side with him, you side against David, who is actually the rightful king which is exactly the same for us in our life. This throne is actually not yours. And as long as you stay on it, it's a form of thievery and robbery. It's robbing the glory from God. It's robbing him from his position. So you keep thinking, but it's mine. It's not yours. But as long as you claim it, you're in the position of the proud. And that's not a good position to be in in Scripture, by the way. And as a result, you must humble yourself, yield your throne, and enter into his kingdom, the better kingdom. So the second, this is the humble, the throne yielders. The love of Jonathan, loving the one God has chosen. I think the picture of Jonathan 
is so profound because most of us, when we learn it in Sunday school and on flannel boards and things like that, don't truly understand the significance of what Jonathan is giving up. To choose to love David, it's not just to accept David dutifully. It's saying, yes, he is the better man. My father has made mistakes, and I, I will choose not to stand against David. No, he loves David. He literally is going to forsake his own kingdom to establish the kingdom of David. It's an incredible picture. The covenant with the better man. So here's a covenant that you're going to see Jonathan and David make. And I want, as you see this, we're going to unpack this, and this is really what the message is, to recognize Jonathan's response to David. Like I said, it's not just dutiful. It's giving up everything. It's giving him his strength. Giving it, it's like if, if Jonathan has a pile of cash, it's like that cash goes to David. If, if Jonathan has swords and spears and shields, all of that goes to David. He is going to give everything he has to support the kingdom of David. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. Now Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, My father seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. So Jonathan said to David, Whatever you yourself desire, I will do it for you. Could you imagine if you had that quote uh, in your walk with Jesus? Listen, listen to it again. Whatever you yourself desire, I will do it for you. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. So Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger. By the way, this is skipping through a lot, a lot of Scripture if you're wondering. It's like, is this one little flow? And that's why on the left side, you're going to see uh, all the Scripture references. But if you're getting this via podcast, you wouldn't have been seeing that. So Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had treated him shamefully. Is that the way you feel towards your first life and how it has treated Jesus? That literally you are grieved because your first life has not honored Jesus the way it ought. The making and affirming of covenant. 1 Samuel 18.3, Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. 1 Samuel 20.16, So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. 1 Samuel 20, 17, now Jonathan again caused David to vow because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. 1 Samuel 23, 18, so the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. So a covenant, one of the best pictures of covenant that we have in our culture is marriage. Unfortunately, the marriage covenant has morphed into what we would probably more likely call the marriage contract today, which is as long as both sides are keeping their end of the deal, well, then it's fine. But if one side violates it, it's over. And that's a contract. A covenant is a binding agreement, which means it is till death parts you. It is not something that is lightly taken. A covenant breaker in history is one of the most serious crimes. Even amongst the Native American culture, if there was ever a covenant breaker, they would hunt down their descendants, I don't know what it was, like for a hundred generations and, and kill them. It was like the most serious crime was to break an oath or a covenant. And I think for, for many of us, if you're, if you're hearing my Daily Thunder series, the Alfred the Great series, that was the same for them. In the, in the 800s, 900s, oath-breaking was the most serious crime. Uh, and so for us, we don't, we don't see that. But when Jonathan is entering into this, it's binding. He is literally making a clear statement in his soul that is going to bind him. And so one of the things that was illustrated in this is they would exchange, because covenant is an exchange. And so what you see is like a robe. He, Jonathan takes off his robe, and he's going to take on the robe of David. He's going to take his weaponry and give it to David. David, in a sense, is going to give his weaponry. And what that means is, if someone comes against me, they are going to fight. Let me say it this way. If Sam in covenant with, with David, that means if I get attacked, David is going to come to my rescue. But if David gets attacked, I'm going to come to his rescue. I'm in covenant with him. And so therefore, I'm in covenant with him in life and in death. 
So if he is dying, I am going to risk my life to save him. And so whether it's good times or uh, difficult times, we're in this thing together. And so what you're going to see in a marriage covenant is an exchange of vows and rings. You're going to see a very similar pattern. We just don't oftentimes know what we're doing. It's just tradition. But it actually comes from a biblical framework of covenant that is binding and very, very somber and serious. So the exchange... Let's dig a little deeper into this. 1 Samuel 18, 3 through 4. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. The four sacred elements of exchange. We'll, we'll look at these uh, each individually. The robe, which is symbolic of authority, position, name, and reputation. And so that's a pretty significant thing if you think about what Jonathan is doing. This robe that he has, this kingly robe, this son of the king robe, this heir apparent robe, which is his authority, his position, his name, and his reputation, he's willing to take this off and give it to David and put it around the shoulders of David. By the way, I'm giving a hint at how the gospel works just in and of itself. This is profound in how it, it demonstrates the gospel. Garments, possessions, and inheritance. Sword and bow, protection, preservation, watchful eye of defense. Belt, enabling power, quickening strength. So Luke 22, 14 through 20, this is obviously in the New Testament now. This is uh, at the Last Supper. When the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. What we see is an incredible exchange. For those of us that were here on Friday, we actually took communion. We talked about it being a covenant meal. This is a covenant meal. This is a meal, in fact, uh, in the Hebrew culture, I think I also expressed this on Friday, when a man proposed to his bride, he would set a glass of wine in front of her. And if she drank of it, she was saying, yes, I will and I do, uh, to this covenant arrangement. And so what we have is this incredible picture of Jesus basically setting his body and his blood in front of them. And he's saying, I am giving you my body and my blood. And the proper response then in an exchange is to recognize that as they're taking it, they're also committing their body and their blood to him. Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. What is the king of the universe removing his robe for and sticking it around our shoulders? Why would he covenant with us? It's mystifying, but this is the essence of the gospel message. The essence of the gospel is a covenant. It's binding. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He asks for everything. So I'm just going to let that linger in the air a little, that... The demand of covenants is everything. When I get married, I actually am giving my name, my reputation, my possessions, my time, my future. Everything is going into the pot. Okay, It's like I don't just keep my prenuptial agreement. You're going to have a tough time finding a prenup agreement in Scripture. I'm not holding on to this part of my kingdom and then only giving my wife this. It is like if you really want a healthy marriage, it's like, hey, I'm in. All that I have is yours. All that she has is mine. And in other words, we're sharing life. We're becoming one. And what we see is Jesus is saying, look, as your rightful king, now I, I don't want to give too much away, even though you probably already know it. I want to give you all that I am. But I need all you are. It's not, we're not signing a prenup agreement with Jesus going, I'm going to keep this sector of my kingdom from the, the covenantal arrangement. And you can have just my Sunday mornings, 
That isn't how it works. That's not a good marriage, by the way. It's not going to go over too well. He asks for everything. So our robe, our position, name, fame, and authority in exchange for his. Now, it's, it's so funny because I don't know how many of us are famous in here. I don't know that that's a good description for the type of people that just hang out here. <laughs> famous, right? That, that's really not the description probably that would be used. And yet we do have a position in this world. And some of us have worked really hard to gain a reputation and to sort of have the cool vibe going. You know, where there's a certain way, the way we dress, the way we stand, uh, you know, the way we talk and the, the vernacular we use is really, you know, in stride with the culture. There's a lot of work that goes on here to really fit in down here. And Jesus is like, could you take that and hand it to me? Like, what am I getting? Well, you're getting my robe. You were crucified. <laughs> you were hated and despised. But he is the king of kings. He is literally giving you his robe, but with his robe comes his identity. It's a fellowship. Isn't that just interesting? You've knit together this incredible persona, and Jesus is saying, could you take that off? Will you give up your reputation and be willing to be deemed a fanatic and a fool? Will you surrender your name and allow it to be swallowed up in his name? No longer will anything be about you, but your life from this day forward will be about him and his glory. Will you give up position, fame, and worldly authority in order to become royalty in his kingdom? Have you ever uh, thought of John 15, the vine and the branches? Where you're a branch, and you're disconnected from the vine, but as long as you're disconnected, you sort of have your own identity. It's like, so who's that? Well, I'm a branch, right? Now, you're a dead branch because you're not connected to anything living, right? But you still can lay on the side of the road, you know, sort of like, eh, you, know, you can have your cool thing going, but the moment you give up your life and you're grafted into him, now you're part of something bigger than you. So now when someone sees the, the vine, they're not saying, hey, look at that one branch. That one branch seems to have the cool vibe going. <laughs> you're being swallowed up in his identity, which is the vine. And as a result, you have to forsake your own mm, stuff, your own thing that you had going. Our garments, our earthly possessions, and our, and our corruptible inheritance in exchange for the eternal treasure of the kingdom. It's still very precious to us, even though we all know it's going to be burned up in the end. It's still ours. And so to give this up is, is a real choice. It is a deliberate step we need to make. Will you relinquish everything you possess for him? Will you give up the applause of men, the security of financial stability, even the comforts of a self-indulgent existence? Will you give him your health, wealth, and every material possession for him to do with as he sees fit? Okay, do you see that there's a sobriety to this message, just like a wedding. When you are entering into a wedding, you want to make sure that the other person knows what they're doing. You want, you want them to have counted the cost. You want them to know this is till death parts us. Did, did we review this yet? You don't want to hastily enter a covenant. You want to, with the full weight of reality, enter that covenant with even a little trembling. You bring witness in to testify of the fact, no, you did say it. You see, a wedding is a very solemn occasion. Even though it's a celebration, the exchange of vows is very, very serious. It's very, very meaningful even in the kingdom of heaven because it is a shadow of of something even greater, which is the covenant we are entering into with our bridegroom, our heavenly one. Our sword and bow, our human defense in exchange for his almighty defense. We have different techniques that we use to make it through life. And could you imagine if you had arrows being shot at you from a, an, an evil archer and they were fire arrows, and you, know, you could have your jujitsu moves like... <laughs> trying to block those, but you know, it's not the best way to defend yourself. And that's sort of the way it is. We have a strong tower known as Jesus, but we have to give up our defense to take on his. And when you enter into a strong tower, it's just such, so much superior. And yet when we do the defending ourselves, we get the credit for it. When we overcome obstacles, guess who gets the praise? It's like, yeah, I, I did that. And so in a sense, you have to give up that, that way of living. This is no longer about you. All the praise and the glory goes to the one who is greater. 
Will you let down your defenses and allow him to remodel your life? Will you allow him to discipline you, convict you, and transform you into something that this world will reject, revile, and crucify? Will you surrender to him your self-preservation in exchange for his preservation of your existence on planet Earth? Will you allow him to use your life to fight his battles rather than your own self-aggrandizing battles? Our belt. Our ability to perform in exchange for his enabling power and quickening grace. Will you allow him to break you? Will you surrender to him your self-derived strength so that he may replace it with his own heavenly version of world-altering power? Will you give him the privilege of keeping you dependent so that he might prove his might in and through your life? Will you allow him the privilege of showcasing his glory to this world through your existence? So we started with that statement, he asks for everything. But now let's finish this. He asks for everything, yes. But remember, he gives us everything that could possibly matter in return. If, if this was some kind of, um, say we had a little mediation and someone was complaining that God is asking too much and we're all sort of going to evaluate. And so we have God's arguments over here and we have our argument over here. And all of you are listening in. You know, and Eric Ludi is moaning and groaning and complaining because my little handful of pebbles, God's asking for them. You know, but these are so precious to me, and, you know, I worked hard for these. And God has, uh, let's just imagine the United States, and it goes, you know, about 2,000 miles high, and it's stocked full of kingdom treasure, and all of it belongs to Eric if he would let go of his pebbles. And if you're listening to me grumble and complain that God is asking for too much because he's asking for every one of my pebbles, and I can't just keep some of my pebbles to myself. It's like it's unfair. The whole statement that Eric is making is totally ludicrous. Eric has no idea what he's talking about. And you should tell Eric that if you're the mediators here. It's like, Eric, this is a very one-sided thing. In fact, we feel bad for Jesus because he's getting the short end of the stick on this one. He's getting your pebbles. Meanwhile, you're getting all of his riches. So I think you should shut up and let go of your pebbles. And that's about right. When it comes to the kingdom of heaven, we need to shut up and give up everything. The covenant exchange, trading robes with Christ. He took on my sin that I may take on his righteousness. He took on my curse, my punishment, that I may take on his liberty. He took on my separation that I may take on his sonship. He took on my shame that I may take on his favor and bear his glory. He took on my sorrows that I may take on his joy. He took on my sufferings that I may take on his comfort. He took on my Adam position that I may take on his kingly position. He took on my poverty that I may, I may take on his inheritance. And even now he takes on my body and wears it as his own. And I take on his body and I'm seated in heavenly places at the right hand of the Father in the person of Christ. Physically, I, Eric Ludi, and you, you could stick yourself in the I position in this, am here in Windsor, Colorado. So physically, I am here, but spiritually, I am there in him. There's an exchange. Hudson Taylor, Taylor called it uh, the, uh, well, now I can't even remember what it's called. I just, the exchange, the exchange life. Uh, and so it's my little L life capital, or I'm sorry, lowercase l life for his capital L life. I'm exchanging. I'm giving up my life to receive his. He's taking my lowercase l life. He is actually suffering, dying. He's taking my criminal position so that I can take his liberated position. I mean, all these things, it's such an unfair, unbalanced, unequitable system, this whole gospel. But he loves us, and he desires us. And he has chosen us as his bride. It's hard to swallow even when you begin to grasp what he has given us. And the fact that we hesitate to respond. Physically I am here, but spiritually I am there in him. Now listen to this, this is good. Physically he is there, seated at the right hand of the Father. But spiritually he is here in me. And that's the amazing covenantal relationship we have, which is why in these bodies we are called the house or the temple of God. The Spirit of God actually dwells within us. 
and yet his body is there and we dwell within him, which gives us access unto the Father so that we can pray in the name of Jesus even though we live here in this body, and some of us wish we could be up there instead of here at times, but we're here because we have an assignment, but we're given the power of Almighty God to carry it out. I mean, it's just an amazing system, this thing called the kingdom of heaven. I think we should get rather excited about it. Jonathan took off his robe. Will we? So Jonathan made a decision that is going to set a pace and a pattern for us to follow him. He, gave, he took off his robe. He took off his position. God is going to literally say in the New Testament, put off the old man. Put on Christ. So as a result, this idea of a robe is very real. You could continue to wear the robe of Saul. You could and you will be crushed in it. Or you could take the extended hand of the better man who is reaching out and saying, please, let me rescue you. But you have to give up that robe to do it. You have to put it off so that he can clothe you in himself. He has a far greater, more superior robe to clothe you in. I know, it's hard to give up that first life. It's such a strange thing that we fight this. We can know in our head how truthful it is, and yet we still delay, we still hesitate. So this is adapted, and, and as you look through this, there's going to be all these little insert your name here uh, statements. So my name happens to be Eric Ludi. Yours is not. At least that would be very weird if we had multiple Eric Ludis in here, right? There's not that many. I was uh, at an Avis rental car uh, one day, and I said, yeah, the name is uh, Eric Ludi. Like, are you the Eric Ludi from Maryland or from Colorado? I'm like, what? There's some other guy out there toting around my name and messing with it. It sort of it bothers you a little, right? <laughs> However, what I want you to do is personalize this. Okay, I can't personalize it for him. Well, we could. I mean, I could walk through each one of you and, and put your name in here. It'd take a little time. So I'm going to need you to actively do that. But I want you to engage. I'm actually sticking, instead of David, I'm going to stick Jesus in. And instead of Jonathan, we're going to say, insert your name here. All right, this is fun. The soul of, uh, that's you, was knit to the soul of Jesus. And, insert your name here, loved him as his or her own soul. Then, and I'm going to have to use my name because this is really awkward to say, insert your name here. Then Eric and Jesus made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Eric took off the robe that was on him and gave it to Jesus with his armor, even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now the old man spoke to Eric and to all of his servants that they should kill Jesus, but Eric delighted greatly in Jesus. So Eric told Jesus, saying, my old man seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in the secret place and hide. So Eric said to Jesus, whatever you yourself desire, I will do it for you. So Eric made a covenant with the house of Jesus saying, let the Lord require it at the hand of Jesus' enemies. So Eric arose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for Jesus because his old man had treated him shamefully. See, isn't that beautiful? Now, hopefully you were able to stick your own name in and you weren't distracted by Eric always being stuck in there. But to exercise the personal touch of Scripture, the word in Scripture for word is logos, so, or in the English, we oftentimes pronounce it logos. So the scripture is the logos of God, the logos of God. 66 books, and here's one of the ways you can understand logos. It's the general revelation of God, the invisible realm given to us, but it's general to all. It's the same for every single one of us. It's not like you have a special version of the Bible, and it's different than mine. We all have the same Bible. It's the same revelation for all of us, and yet... Even though we all have the exact same scriptures, the way God takes from those scriptures and brings them to our, our life 
is, has some uniqueness to it, just like your fingerprint has uniqueness to it, just like your hairdo, your eyes, they all are unique. God is going to bring from that logos to our life in a very specific way because we all have a different time in history that we live. We all have a different setting for our life that is being laid out. We all have different personalities. We're all unique and so when he takes from that word and brings it to us personally, that's called rhema. It's a, it's a different word. You know what it translates to in, in the English? Uh, word. And so, for instance, when God is going to speak to Mary about using her body to house the Messiah, she is going to hear the rhema of God. And she's going to say, be it done unto me according to thy word. But what word is talking about? It's a very specific word for her that matches the entire scripture. It's the seed of a woman that will crush the head of the serpent. So it's not contrary, but it's specific to her. So as a result, it's not like God is coming to you in and through that scripture and saying, I'd like to you know, uh, house the Messiah inside of you and have you birthed in Bethlehem. That isn't how it's going to work for you. However, it's a picture. Mary's life is a picture of what Jesus desires to do inside of you. But it's personal to all of us, just like it was personal to Mary. These scriptures are personal for you, and the Holy Spirit wants to introduce you to how you live out as Jonathan once lived, how you can not side with the wrong man, the rejected man, but actually side with the better man. Scripture is what the, the Spirit of God desires to take from the general and make it very specific for you so that you know how you ought to live. Father, I ask that you would work in a beautiful and mighty way to prepare us for this time of sharing in the body, that we would know how to exercise these truths together, and that we would be built up and edified as a result. Lord, thank you for the covenant that you have extended to us. I pray that each of us would make a decision, as Jonathan did, to humble ourselves and to love the better man. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we ask this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.